Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much to all of our listeners all over the world and to our ready, steady listeners in the U.S. and U.K. and Canada, Australia. I also am really taken by the listeners who are listening in great numbers in some unexpected places. So once again, be in touch with us at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com and let us know what resonates for you in your part of the world, especially this past week with all of our listeners in Austria, in Portugal, and in Slovenia. So curious about all those places. Please be in touch. And so for today, we have a colleague and an old friend of mine, John Atak, on the show. John is a leading expert on authoritarian cult groups as well as a best-selling author. He's worked with hundreds of former members and has lectured and written extensively in a career spanning four decades. John wrote the book, Scientology, The Cult of Greed, as a simple introduction to the subject, while his influential book, Let's Sell These People a Piece of Blue Sky, is the only comprehensive history of the bizarre group known as Scientology, and it really is bizarre. Through his popular YouTube channel and podcast, simply titled John Atak and Friends, he endeavors to make complex psychological ideas accessible. His scholarship has been supported by many academics from varying fields of study. John's book, Opening Our Minds, shows how cultic behaviors are established throughout society, and it sheds light on the methods used in pseudo-religions, therapy, and commercial cults, terrorism, gangs, grooming, hazing, and modern slavery. He also shows that these methods succeed because of failures in our education system. Additionally, on today's show, you'll hear a sample of a new song by Alan Schlafer called Waiting for the Rain, whose moving lyrics I felt complemented the content of this interview and even tie into the title of John's influential work, Let's Sell These People a Piece of Blue Sky. When L. Ron Hubbard had the audacity to promise people a piece of a blue sky. He was making it so clear that he was willing to promise people anything. And when you're in Scientology, you're very far away from the vision of blue skies. Things actually feel quite dark. So it's much more realistic, much more grounded, if you will, even if we're talking about the sky. To be waiting for the rain, an eventuality, something that happens, something you can live through, but something that's real, that's not a false promise. Here's John A. Tech now. When you're standing in the shadows And you hide yourself from the light And you hold the darkness close to you And it keeps you warm at night so you find the night time when it calls and you put the daylight on hold and something very wrong is happening to your soul when you're waiting for 
How are you, John? How are you doing? I'm fine. All the best for seeing you, Rachel. Been far too long. Really? So it has been over a year and a lot has happened in that time. And it's so nice to be able to check in with you. I always enjoy our conversations. I I think they're they're just really dynamic and fun and there's so much to cover and uh it always seems that the time goes by very quickly. Um so tell me, tell the listeners what you've been doing since uh since we last spoke. So I guess in the last year. Well, the significant event is that um I've been researching the life and times of Charles Manson which came about because a guy called Tom O'Neill wrote a book called Chaos, in which he alleged that Jolly West had programmed the Manson family, or it was put to me that that was what was said. And I went and read this thing and sort of went, this, this isn't a Jolly West I knew. <laughs> Jolly West I knew was a tremendously helpful human being. So I went on a, a show with Eric Hunley, who'd told me about this, and, you know, had gone through what O'Neill says, and, and he, his conclusion is pretty much that all he can prove is that Charles Manson and Jolly West both walked the corridors of the Haight-Ashbury Free Clinic. End of story. Man spent 20 years researching this book, and that's the best he's got. He kind of um, talks about Jolly as his great white whale, which would make him Captain Ahab, by my reckoning. And so... It, it, I sort of went, oh, I really don't want to write about Charles Manson. Who wants to write about Charles Manson? Horrible stuff. And I thought, well, why doesn't Tom O'Neill mention that, that Charles Manson spent 14 months studying Scientology? So um, I thought, oh, maybe, maybe I better read, read Jeff Gwynn's book. So I read that. And, and he's got a paragraph where he says he studied Scientology. And I looked in the and, and he reckons it's because he did the Dale Carnegie course that he got to learn how to manipulate people. He actually dropped out of the Dale Carnegie course, I later found. But I looked in the bibliography of Gwynne's book, and I wonder what he knows about Scientology. And the bibliography said, what is Scientology? You know, the big PR handout book. And that was it. So it was this, oh, people think that it's a faith. People, you know, and they come and go. They don't realize it's the most elaborate system of mind control, thought reform, ever devised. And that Manson spent 14 months while in prison studying this with a uh, professionally qualified Scientologist who, when he found he couldn't afford to go up the bridge further, decided he'd get some money quickly. And his get-rich-quick scheme was to rob two banks. <laughs> and he got caught. <laughs> and he ended up in a cell with Charles Manson, which can't have been that much fun. So I've read 14 books now and looked through lots of stuff and I've got a publishing contract in the offing and I'm talking with a couple of documentary companies and it is just that thing of getting it over that it does actually influence people what they believe. So that's, that's taken up far too much of my time. I'm now retired, so I'm not doing any of this anymore. Uh, how about you? What have you been up to since last we met? I have been continuing to work with clients. I do have some general clients, but most are former cult members, their families and friends wanting to reach out, wanting to help while their loved ones are kind of still embroiled in something or after they've come out and they realize they're they're needing some help from 
their family and friends. I'm continuing to run a support group for former cult members and also people who had been in relationships with narcissists, wherever they really felt like they lost themselves, a sense of self. And that's great. That meets every other week. There, there are a number of groups that are now being offered, some by licensed professionals, some not. Some people are having an okay experience, some not in these groups, which has been interesting to see. Most, uh, I, I would love to have an opportunity to conf- teach people who are wanting to run groups about how to do it, but also how to do it for this community. Because I've learned a lot from working with people who are saying, you know, that that's actually triggering for me. And uh, let me tell you why. Uh, So I've tailor made it to the population, but also through their feedback, which I always appreciate. That's been very interesting. But yeah, I'd love to have a chance to teach about that. You know, being in contact as much as possible with my now adult kids and tending to my elderly dog (laughs) and then, you know, things like that. And my garden, which I know you, uh, you appreciate, you appreciate everything. So it's been also really interesting to see how the media has been open to and wanting to really get the, the word out about particular groups um, very happy that some information is out there. Some, of course, some shows are handled, I think, better than others, more professionally than others, less sensationalistically than others. But still, I'm very glad that it's out there. And I've started to put together kind of the outline of a book at long last. Um, I just haven't had the time, but now being basically an empty nester of having a little more time. And so I'm putting that together and it will be kind of a, you know, each chapter will be a different case and how it was different from another and how I did the the work to help them um, if I were, was able to help them. Because I think that that's not something that's that's out there as much about what, what to do next, you know, how you intervene, how you support, how you help heal. Really pleased to hear that you're writing a book because you are one of the very few people who does have a proper professional training as a counsellor and does understand cultic involvement because you've had quite a lot of time dealing with former cult members. And I think it is important. There there is so much out there. I mean, I I won't name any names, but I I saw a book a few years ago that was written by somebody who'd been in a a cult group, grew up in a a group, was born in, and had then trained as a counsellor and specialised in trauma recovery, and then wrote a book. And the problem along the way was that this person had not ever actually dealt with former cult members. It was bringing together their own experience with their training. And when I saw the book, I was actually asked to, to develop a course based upon this book. And the person was asked, had, you know, how many people had they counseled who'd been in, in a cultic situation? And the answer was none. And it is very different that somebody will come to a counsellor and say, oh, you know, I need help. And they'll very often get the kind of cookie-cutter approach that this person has this system that they apply. And you said something along the way, which I think is, is vitally important, that some members of some groups will be triggered by certain things that they may encounter in therapy. So I was involved in Scientology, and Ron Hubbard scooped up everything he could find, largely forms of hypnosis, 
but he, you know, he also had a little bit of Joseph Breuer's original method is what became Dianetics. Um, it failed for Breuer and Freud, it's worth pointing out. And the only client we know of is Anna Fonneau, who ended up in a, in a lunatic asylum where she was signed in by Breuer. But so not the best of ideas. But it meant that having been through Scientology, you've been through all sorts of visualization stuff, all sorts of imaginary stuff. You've done clay demos with what we call plasticine in this country. And it touches on methods that are used, for example, in Gestalt therapy. Fritz Perls indeed acknowledged Ron Hubbard as somebody he respected. So you can find yourself in a situation with a counsellor who doesn't understand your cult. And for me, there are two things that are important. The first is that when somebody emerges from a group, they have what I call a cultic shell. Some people will call it the cult identity. We could call it that. But their beliefs will determine their behavior, and their beliefs have come from the group. And if you don't understand that, then you may find yourself actually dealing with, with um, a kind of pseudo-identity in the person. So you have to penetrate that first, and that is getting the person to be willing to look at their beliefs and getting into a you can't be judgmental about this and it's so easy to be you know when you look at the lunatic ideas of some of these groups but if somebody comes away and they go well i still i believe in that then that's their right but what you want is for them to be saying but i no longer believe in that finding something example i've often given was was a woman who came to me and uh First time we, we met, she, she said, um, was it true what Hubbard had... And she'd grown up in, in Scientology. She was now nearly 40. She'd left more than 15 years before. But because she'd grown up in it, she didn't have an alternative view of the world to, to return to. And so she said, is it true, as Hubbard says, that reality is an agreement? And I went, well, yeah, if you're the hypnotist, that is in fact true. <laughs> but for the rest of us, no. You perceive the universe as you perceive it. You live in your interpretation of it. But the universe is the universe, I figure, by now. The next week when I spoke with her, she said, I've used scented laundry conditioner. And it's like, we didn't, we didn't talk about the hygiene hat in the sea organization and Hubbard's absolute phobia of any kind of scent so that people who are in his sea organization are not allowed to use scented soaps, shampoo, anything. Because as he put it, the psychiatrists are governing the world using rose perfume. <laughs> As we all know, you know, perfectly sensible idea. So she, we hadn't talked about it. And this was just a, such an incredible victory to go. She started thinking about it and saying, well, maybe I can challenge this idea. And this was the first one to go. And I'm happy to report that 10 years later, she is, you know, pretty much through all of that, long, long through all of that. But I, I think it's such an important thing to, also to accept that the person may have had experiences that were very positive. You know, somebody may have had some Scientology auditing and it helped them to change their life. But it's helping them to understand that they were the agent in this. It wasn't Ron Hubbard from beyond the grave instructing them. Right. And one of the things that I talk to families about when they want to sit with their loved ones is to start with the positive and to ask what has been a good experience, what they've learned. Um, you know, there are some people who learn a particular work ethic, which is, it's like you've been in the army. Well, you know, where you just can't rest at all. You're 
berated, but still, you know, you get things done at a certain time or Thursday at two. And, you know, I think that that for some people seems a bonus, even though it comes with a lot of release of cortisol, because you know what's going to happen to you if you don't do it on time. But for some people, they like that motivator and to how to talk about it in a in a positive way. I think the scented laundry detergent is so powerful. I think people, you know, I'm, I'm remembering there was a woman I worked with who was a sister wife in an FLDS compound. And her husband, she was one of eight wives. She was 16. When she was able to leave the compound, she would um, have these little moments of what she called rebellion, even though I think it was kind of a sense of agency. Like, I want to do my thing, even though I'm not allowed. And if you need to call it rebellion, I mean, it just shows that you were in this uh, environment that would label anything you did that was not okay, a rebellion. But it's okay to still use that word for a while, um, even if it has a bit of a negative connotation because there's an empowerment in it. Uh, Her husband didn't like the color pink for whatever reason. And so no one was allowed to wear pink. And when I met with her after a few times, she said, can I show you something? And she's, she lifts up her skirt and she's wearing, I don't know, England, what they call them, but bicycle shorts, like these sort of shorts that are a bit longer and, and kind of skin tight. And they were pink. No one could see them. She just knew she was wearing them. Right. And it was huge for her huge. She was afraid that the sun would hit the material of the dress just right. Someone could see the pink. That never happened, but she was concerned about that. Still with this sort of worry about that watchful eye, um, which I think takes quite some time to to leave you. But I loved it. And when I did this webinar um, that now is available on my website for former cult members and for families and friends, during one of the um, sessions. I wore a pink shirt in honor of her, but in honor of the people who who make their statements, even if it's just for them, it's incredibly important. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It, and it's fascinating that, that there's this sort of polarized view that that there are pro cult apologists who have decided that what we're saying is that when you join a cult, a destructive cult, you will become a brainwashed zombie. They've somehow got this misapprehension, whereas the reality is that people are immersed to differing extents. I mean, in an aside, but in studying the Manson family, so-called family, um, Tex Watson, who led seven of the nine murders, and Susan Atkins, both secretly, they kept a stash of amphetamines, and Manson disapproved of amphetamines. But in fact, on the night of the tape murders, they'd both taken amphetamines. So, and in talking with the documentarian about this recently, she was very disappointed because there was the idea that all Manson must have completely controlled them. And understanding the extent to which it's a collaborative process, being in any group. And so you give up certain rights and privileges. I remember talking with um, Sarah Edmondson about her involvement in Nixium and talking about the incredible calorie control that Keith Ranieri had going so that you know all of his all of the women would be pretty much anorexic and I mentioned this she said oh I never did that I didn't agree with that and you go wow she was what a 14-year member and yet so people do still 
retain their individuality. They aren't just robots or clones or something like this. But there's that the guilt that then has then been added to to wearing pink. So so it becomes a it becomes a control mechanism of itself, I suppose. Right. Yeah. Very much so. Yeah. Very much so. I think you know the people who are able to be independent thinkers to hold on to certain things. I mean, it, very often they're the ones who are really uh, mistreated even more so by the time they leave they've been put through so much just by virtue of them having this nonconformity um but it is the nonconformity that i think was the catalyst for them to be able to leave so it, even though you get punished more for it it becomes you know your saving grace to a great degree uh, that's very interesting that she didn't follow that. Because um, I heard you women would have to send photos in of their six raspberries or whatever they had for dinner, uh, you know, as proof. And and you've got that incredible control where they could be called on the phone by their master, who would actually generally be a woman, and they had to answer the phone within two minutes or whatever, any time, night or day, no matter what was happening. This incredible control. And so these small acts of rebellion or disagreement become imp important. I, I mean, looking back, it's now, in October, I celebrated the 40th anniversary of my departure from Scientology. But what I couldn't understand when I left was why nobody was standing up and complaining about this. Why didn't, didn't people, you know, there, there were anonymous mailings that had a post office box you could reply to because nobody wanted to be identified. And the first reason was rather obvious. They harass you. <laughs> And which, you know, it's hard to believe, but my nine-year public membership of Scientology, I had no idea that they were harassing opponents. It was not something that was talked about. It was just something that was done by an organization, Branch One, which was kept very separate from the rest of us. But the other thing was, as, you know, time went by, I came to realize just how much people have been terrorized and shamed. Uh, as you say, that the more somebody stuck up for themselves or, or asked questions, the more they'd be attacked. You're talking with um, our mutual friend, Hoyt Richards, and he he left because he was put in, it was what the, the group was called Eternal Values, I think. He, he left after, I think, 20 years of involvement because he was put in the hot seat one more time. And everybody in the group sat round and attacked him in the Chinese brainwashing manner, if they were doing exactly this to people. And he decided, he, he just sort of collapsed inside himself under all of this pressure. And he went, I'll never be good enough to be in the group. And thankfully, that led him to leave. But it, it meant that his recovery was a very long process because he had to regain belief in himself. Oh, my goodness. I'll never be good enough. Right. It's so interesting because the... Uh, invariably what happens is the group or the leader fails, I think the group fails the people in it. It's not the other way around because they just are not able to be the person who their kind of mythical creation would um, convince people they are. Uh, they just don't have the skills, they don't have the power, they don't have those abilities. So many of these people too who run these groups don't have 
I, I say they wouldn't survive in the wild. Like they don't have skills. They rely on other people to do the work for them and to bring in money and to do the, all the labor. And, and I, you know, it's a terrible thing when people leave really berating themselves. It happens almost all the time. And I, I'm curious, you know, that's an interesting discussion about what the catalyst is, because a lot of people will ask me, what will be the thing that will have my loved one open their eyes or feel ready to leave? And it really is different for different people. And I think sometimes it's when you've been pushed that one time too many and or if you see someone else being mistreated, for some people, it, it's looking at someone else's suffering. That that was it for me. It was seeing the way that others were were being treated, and it was just like I'm 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 not going to accept this. And then I was told to uh, disconnect from my my great friend Ira Chaleff, and I just went, no, no, not not doing that. I love that. Simple. I love that. And so when you say that you were you were seeing other people being mistreated. From what you remember during that time, what were you witnessing? I think I was gradually coming to understand that people in the Sea Organization, and I was never on the staff or in the Sea Organization, I, I was public Scientologist. And because I was an artist, writer, musician, albeit not making much money, I was treated as a celebrity because the policy says. So I, for nine years, almost everybody was really nice to me. You know, and I made lots of friends. I, you know, I've, I found it a very friendly environment, you gradually realize that you're being sold something all the time. And when people are friendly with you because they want you to take your checkbook out, that's not actually friendship. But I started to realize that, that these people were not being treated well. And then within days of you know, making a public stand, I actually, it just happened that, that I held the first public meeting of disaffected Scientologists which had been arranged by somebody else. And three days before it was due to happen in the Crown Hotel in East Grinstead, and there's actually video of bits of it still online. Terrible stuff. Thankfully, nothing I said is, is, is you know, so I, I got away with it so far. But seeing that, you know, as I say, nobody had dared stand up. Three days before this meeting was due to happen, I didn't even know it was going to happen. Uh, the guy who'd set it up, a guy called John Mace, had gone back to Australia. And the guy he'd left behind, a guy called Bevan Priest, I woke up at 9.30 in the morning, which for me is very early. I, I'm a noon sort of person. I have a delayed sleep-wake phase, uh, which is a genetic condition. That's my excuse anyway. And so I, I'm awoken by this guy standing by the side of my bed, saluting me and asking me if I'll become the chairman of the OT Committee UK and, and host this meeting. And I'm kind of like, yeah, all right. He's, he's calling me sir. I suppose I ought to really. And I had no idea. I didn't know what an OT committee was or let alone what a chairman of it was. And I was that committee for the next sort of six months. <laughs> yeah. And of course, in Scientology, because you've got lots of body thetans, you can, of course, be a, a plural person. Um, and... Yes, seeing what happened there, you know, that just the the unwillingness of people to look at reality, you know, and, and reality was very straightforward for me. I discovered that Ron Hubbard contradicted himself, that he said things, he was a nuclear physicist, he'd studied with gurus in the East. And I started to to see that he'd just made all these stories up. 
he never saw combat in World War II. He most certainly didn't. He failed in atomic and molecular physics and was thrown out of college. But atomic and molecular physics isn't nuclear physics. It's a different kettle of fish altogether. There were no courses in nuclear physics when he was at university because as a subject, it was only just opening up. The Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics was in 1928 when he was about 17. So it hadn't happened. Uh, And he, in a lecture, actually admits, 23rd September 1950, Introduction to Dianetics, he says, I failed my atomic and molecular physics. So all of these big claims, but then seeing that he actually contradicted himself. So he'd tell one story, he was two years old when he became a a blood brother of the Blackfoot Bakuni people. Then he was four years old, then he was six years old in another story. And, you know, putting all of that together, what shocked me was that to me, it was evident. These were his own statements. They were in contradiction. They were in conflict. I went to my fellow believers, and they made up excuses. So when I pointed out to a former commanding officer at St. Hill, uh, the East Grinstead headquarters of Scientology, that Ron Hubbard claimed to have been crippled and blinded at the end of World War II in a couple of places. But he also said that on July the 25th, 1945, He'd been in Hollywood where he'd beaten up three petty officers. And this was a reference I'd never seen before. And when I found it, I was like, well, that can't be possible that in the, what, 19 days from then to the end of the war, he was somehow crippled and blinded. And this woman said to me, oh, well, he had two bodies. So why didn't I think of that? Then years later, somebody else, you know, Hubbard had said he had injured optic nerves. And they said, yes, well, his necessity level came up, so he was able to beat up these three petty officers. I traced the incident. He was in Hollywood then. That was true. He did get into a fight with two petty officers, not three, and he was summoned as a witness to their court-martial. I went no further than discovering that. I don't think he beat them up, if anybody's worried about that. And I think that's a very important thing, that in talking to families and friends, and you know, the first thing that we will generally say is don't antagonize them. <laughs> you know, don't pull out little newspaper clippings and say, I told you so. That's not going to help. Be warm and receiving. And as you say, and and you're one of the few people that does say it, you know, which is why I treasure you, you have to find out what what is their involvement? Why are they doing this? What is good about it? And I used to have a little set of questions, which was, you know, what what have you gained? What have you benefited? How have you benefited? What do you expect to gain? What have you seen others gain? And with Scientology, of course, you've got the, the great mystique of exteriorization. Scientology is totally focused from the beginning, right the way through to this idea that you can be three feet back of your head. I'm not really sure that that's the best place to observe life from. I mean, you're driving a car and you're three feet back, you know, that could be a bit dangerous. But Hubbard had got this fixation. He had a, uh, his wisdom teeth extracted in February 1938. And during that experience, he claimed he was dead for eight minutes. And then he came back. And while he was exterior from his body, he went to another realm where he saw what he called a smorgasbord of knowledge. Why the word buffet wasn't good enough for him, a decent French word, had to use it. Scandinavian word, we'll never know. But And then he was suddenly pulled back because it wasn't his time. He spent the rest of his life, you know, almost 50 years, trying to repeat that experience. 
and repeatedly claiming that he could consistently do this. A couple of weeks ago, I talked to a guy who'd escaped from a, a Hindu-based group, rather nasty group, and uh, his guru was really into Ron Hubbard. He's like, Ron Hubbard's one of the great people. And after we talked, he said to me, you know, how do you do the exteriorization? You know, and it's like, don't, it's made up. I've talked with more than a thousand Scientologists over the years, and I've never had any kind of reliable out-of-the-body experience. And there are other people who do describe such things, but I've never heard one in Scientology. And I tend to go with Susan Blackmore, the psychology professor's view. I'm told that she's written a new book, but she wrote a book called Beyond the Body, where she showed that if you systematically took these experiences apart, that what was described when outside of the body was not accurate. That, you know, the the colour of the roofs would be wrong or, or what, what have you. But you have this mystique, you have this idea that you're going to achieve this supernatural state. And I think, you know, let it, letting people talk about what it is they believe without attacking them and without feeling that you have to comment on what they say. Because what I find, certainly for myself, is if I have to talk about something, when I am talking about it, that's the point where I realize that I don't understand what I'm talking about. And in, you know, in describing Scientology and one's experiences, you can come to this point where you're kind of going, actually, that doesn't really make sense. And as long as you have a safe environment in which you can talk, well, that can go somewhere. It can become something beneficial, but it is very much... I, when I used to do interventions, and that's 30 years ago now, 95 was the last time, but when I used to do interventions, the, the thing was to let the person lead, to, to go in and say, your family, or the, I would only take one person into the room with me, you know, so they're not you know, milieu control of seven or eight people. They're all kind of you know, in the Alcoholics Anonymous notion of intervention. So I'd go in with the person that, that they had you know, the most sympathy with and say, you know, whoever it was, you, your mum thinks you've been brainwashed by a cult. I'm here to help you explain the reality of that. So you're on side straight away. And with, I never went in going, I'm going to get somebody out of Scientology. It's always, I'm going to give somebody information they won't have so that they can make a better decision about their involvement. I'm happy to say that over a period of some years, everybody who taught me decided they didn't want to be involved. But that wasn't the objective. The objective was to get, get them to, to be able to think for themselves, because that is the objective. And if at the end of that, they don't agree with me and my views, that's absolutely fine, as long as they've not developed hostile and antisocial views along the way. Right. So when you talk about your role there, I, I think of the word advocate, that you can be their advocate. And that's a lovely thing um, for them to feel really supported by you and that you'll help to translate things. And it's safe for them to share things in a way that might be different than the way, let's say, their their parents, if it's parents, um, want them to see it. At least that's a place to start because things can change in the conversation. But I love that you give them this idea that you're kind of sitting shoulder to shoulder with them 
And, you know, that very often you don't feel that way, I think, within a cultic system. It might even feel beautiful and nice to be supported in that way. It might be the first time in a long time. When you were saying, too, that that you don't you don't have to comment, that people don't have to comment about what they say. It was, I was thinking about how I will sometimes encourage the people in counseling or in an intervention to not comment about the things that I say. So it was interesting that it goes back and forth. And the reason is that I want there to be a pause. I want there to be silence where the words get reviewed in somebody's mind before they come up with their automatic response. Because then it's a moment potentially for them to hear the contradiction, for them to hear something that doesn't quite come together, for them to deal with cognitive dissonance and have to sit with it, as opposed to just volleying the ball back on my side of the court, where you can be completely emotionally detached and logically detached also. And so if I sometimes I'll just repeat what they've said and I'll say, and after I say this, can you just sit with me and we can both listen to what I just said and have it be reviewed in our minds. And sometimes I see them sort of tilting their head like, huh, that doesn't actually make sense. Or that isn't the way it works or something that's a conflict. And then there's this agitation that sets in that I'll sometimes see where they really, really, really want to get rid of that discomfort by giving me the kind of planned or trained response. And I'll just notice it's hard not to say something right now, isn't it? I'm sure it feels, it it has felt really nice and really lovely and detached that you've had a response like, oh, well, he has two bodies. You know, okay, then I don't have to notice that none of this comes together because I have my answer, which is probably also the appeal for a lot of people and what they're hoping to feel that they have the answer to everything. Yeah, they're superior or they're on the road to becoming superior and they're they're higher, further along the road or higher up the ladder or the bridge or whatever than, than we are. I think it's, I think thinking time digestion time is so important that people get the idea of you know battering somebody down with information and it's a commonplace in authoritarian groups that 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 you there's information overload you're just given more than you can take in and of course when you come away from it often half of what you've been told is gibberish anyway but it's above your level you know so you're, you're not quite enlightened enough yet to understand it you know but so with Scientology, that that sometimes, you know, when I shortly after I I stopped believing, and I was still at the middle of this whole thing, you know, that that the independent Scientologists were looking to me to protect them from the harassment and and the litigation that was going on, and I somehow adopted that role free of charge. I I will be sending a bill at some point, I'm sure. It's Forty years now, but I remember sitting down with with um. A young woman. I was a young man myself at the time. It's, it's hard to imagine that now. But I remember sitting down with her and she was really sort of enthusiastic about Scientology. She'd left the mother cult, but was a practicing independent. And I said, you know, so much of what he's said in Scientology doesn't really make sense. And she said, well, give me an example of that. You know, she was absolutely confident. I said, well, look to the Scientology axioms. Axiom four, space is a viewpoint of dimension. 
And she said, oh, that's easy. I'll explain it to you. And just letting her explain it to me, two hours later, she said, it's nonsense. It, it's tautology. It doesn't say anything. And it's like, yep, that's my point. But allowing the other to explore the thought and allowing the other to process at their own speed rather than forcing them, you know, which is very much you know, part of what I think about what you're saying. And allowing it to go a bit at a time. If you say to somebody, so what do you expect to achieve from Scientology or whatever group? And then you let them answer, but you've set the question going. You know, what have you seen others achieve? And when it comes to, you know, the superpowers in Scientology that, you know, you're a fallen god and you've been given back your godlike powers, it's worth you know, kind of getting somebody to think, what have they actually seen? And what they'll usually say is, well, I saw somebody who changed the traffic lights or um, moved a cloud. And so, you know, I used to do this thing when I was giving a talk, put a little bit of tinfoil on the table in front of me and say, you know, if there are any Scientology OTs exterior watching me here, and they probably are, you know, because I am a significant target, then if, if they could just move this little bit of tinfoil an inch on the table, then I will believe. And uh, it didn't happen, curiously. I'm sure Uri Geller could have found some way of magnetizing it and moving it. You know, but. So, yeah, taking people into their beliefs. And I think also in approaching somebody that it's like the attachment forms. And I'm, I'm not sure that attachment theory works entirely with adults. I think it's very useful with kids. But I think it is true that if you are hostile to somebody, you might have difficulty persuading them. If you're indifferent about what they feel, if you're patronizing, supercilious with them, these are not approaches. And what I've come to is that there are people, and you are naturally one of them, who like other people. And if you set up as a counselor and you don't like people, you simply want to force them into being something because you're trying to get over whatever your problems are, disaster will be the consequence and you'll end up running your own psychotherapy cult or what have you. And it does seem so important. And I think often because in cult membership, you pretty soon find out that the friendship is based upon compliance with the rules. And so if somebody comes to you who is genuinely interested in you and you know, wants to know who you are and how you tick, that of itself can be quite a new experience to somebody who's been forced through, you know, the, the Mormon way or the Jehovah's Witnesses or any of these thousands of different belief systems. Right. Oh, it's interesting. Yeah, I do like people. And I, I mean, that's one of the reasons that I like doing the podcast. I've met so many incredible people and incredible in sometimes in big ways, small ways, but what, you know, and, and that, what I mean by that is that for some people, they've overcome quite a bit and their stories are really very powerful, moving. And the fact that they entrust me and I guess the audience too with that story is really, I'm I'm honored about that. And then there are these people who will tell stories thinking that what they're saying isn't so monumental because I think they still have this kind of cult ideal that they have to be superhuman, super everything. And just in the moment of them saying that they 
I don't know, they, their cat was giving birth and they were helping, you know, the, the little life moments. It doesn't have to be that, you know, they shifted the planet in some way, but that there are these moments that really matter to them. And then they matter to me because it matters to them. It's really interesting. And I, to go back to what we were talking about, about helping someone see something, I think probably the way you come across and people are comfortable sharing with you is that it's not a gotcha moment. And it doesn't have that kind of hostile, competitive part to it. You know, like, oh, I got you. It's like, I want people to get themselves again. Like, not, I got you. I don't need to get you. Fine. I want you to see you and hear what you're saying and see if it resonates. And if it doesn't, then maybe to understand why you were told to just memorize things that you are going to be very confused by, which I think is a is a form of enforced dissociation. You're making someone have to get into a thought that they are not imprinting, they're not really taking in, but they're having to make decisions, they're having to do things based on those ideas that they can't explain, they can't put them in their own words. And so I think people just lose themselves in that process of being in the sort of alternate space and acting upon things that they don't even fully understand. Yeah, I think that's very true. I, you know, I, I think we don't start with, you know, everybody in the world is, is in a perfect ideal state and then a cult comes along. We start with confusion and there, there is no definitive understanding of humanity yet. I've heard lots of explanations over the, over the years. I keep being told that in the last 10 years, we've learned more about the brain than we ever knew. And I've been, I've heard that particular statement since 1984. That was the first time I'd, in the last 10 years, we've learned more. And at the, you know, we're now actually in the last year seeing all sorts of models in neuroscience being adapted. So, for example, meta-analyses, looking at all of the studies or many of the studies have been done on melatonin, serotonin, and oxytocin in the last year, all three of those chemicals have had to be relisted, saying, what we have said so positively, melatonin governs sleep, oxytocin is the cuddle chemical, serotonin is the happiness chemical. This isn't in fact true. What's going on is a lot more complicated than this. I say that because, so we we come from a place of confusion. We then join some group that has certainty and tells us that, you know, they know what to do. And we then adopt that and feel safer, feel more comfortable because we've got an answer. And when that answer is challenged, that, you know, the cognitive dissonance, that, you know, the walls start to wobble. But if the challenge is towards, it's not saying you've got to solve the hard problem of consciousness, which nobody's solved yet. If you're saying to the person, you know, we live in a society where there is obedience, entrained obedience, there is groupthink, there's, you know, I think in the way that people around me think. And then there are methods of amplification, which might be called mind control or thought reform or brainwashing, what have you. And when you put this package together, you have all of these things going on, it's very difficult to be an individual. And I was asked years ago as a documentary maker, a documentary called The Nature of Existence, this great guy, Roger Nygaard, um, who also made Trekkies and Trekkies too. Lovely guy, clever guy. 
And he went around the world and he interviewed 200 people, physicists, you know, neuroscientists, rabbis, Taoist priests, you know, gurus, all sorts of people. And he asked everybody the same questions. And he roped me in for some reason. And we came to the question and, and I, you didn't see the questions first. And it was two hours worth of these things. And he said, um, do we have free will? And I went, I don't think we do, but I think we can. I think we can get it. And it, you know, I'd not thought it through at all. He just asked me the question. And from, from then on, it was, you know, that was about 15 years ago. So I, yeah, I, I'm sticking with that, that, that we come into the world under the control of others, incapable of looking after ourselves. And what should happen by the time we reach adulthood, which the Romans thought was somewhere around the age of 32, and I think they were being optimistic. But by the time we reach adulthood, we should be responsible for ourselves and we should be able to make decisions. And we aren't. Our society, you know, our educational system doesn't focus on doing that. I think you told me something a few years ago that you were talking, you were teaching an adult class and you asked people to write down a time when they'd been encouraged at school and a time when they'd been discouraged. And a very large proportion of people said they couldn't remember in their, what, 13-year school experience ever being encouraged. And I, th I think that speaks to the failure of the system. That because we do grow by encouragement. So, I, you know, I think moving towards the goal for me is that cults represent authoritarianism. They represent the idea that there are uh, leaders who should, we should simply obey and do as we're told because we are inadequate, because we're incapable of making choices. And that's what any authoritarian cult and all cults, destructive cults are authoritarian, is pushing towards the idea where you're just a cog in a machine and you're meant to fit your place. Whereas what we want to do if we're intervening for somebody or helping them recover is to bring them to their own individuality, their own creativity, and their own right to dig their heels in and say, no, I'm not going to do that, you know. Right. I think about uh, language also and how when we are raised, we are given the words for things. We're often told how to feel, how we are feeling. Whether we can wear pink. and Right, exactly. And how to see things. And we're taught how to perceive them. I think about when my kids all started talking at their various ages, I wrote down some of the first things that they said that where they were making sense of things. Um, and I remember my oldest is now 25. He um, is learning how to talk. And I said, good night. And I turned the light off. And just as I'm leaving, I hear him ask, who turned the dark on? Oh. <laughs> and I thought, that's brilliant. And I hope that never changes. I'm sure it will, you know, and I just <laughs> went back in and I said, you're not going to understand this now, but probably if you say that at school, they're going to correct you. But we can keep saying that here if that's the way you see it. And it was fascinating to me because at first I thought, oh, that's wrong. I need to correct him. But no, what? No, 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 no. The world is going to do that, you know, in spades uh, and then some. How do I hold on to this? How do they hold on to this? And I actually think that's where a lot of writers and artists and musicians, that's where they find their place of seeing things 
in their own way and expressing it in their own way through that kind of lens or other language. It's a really lovely way of, I think, having that kind of, you know, independence. But it does get, you know, it gets depressed and squashed out of you and corrected and and you get shamed and socially shamed and it, there's a lot of corralling a person, you know, to become something, but especially within a cultic system. Yeah, it, I mean, my training is as an artist and um, despite Scientology, I went away to art college for two years and did that instead, which was great fun. And then had a, you know, just about survived for about three or four years from by selling paintings. But one of the things that fascinated me was that I'd very often see, you know, little paintings made by preschoolers who had not been told what to paint and that they actually could be quite interesting. And then one of my own nieces, she went to school and now she did mummy, tree, house, cat. She did the things that you're meant to do. And seeing that kind of stifling process, that bringing conformity in, I thought for a long time, you know, back in the early 90s, that creativity and conformity were were poles and that our education system should look more to creativity than it does to conformity. Um, I mean, I very much agree with Ira Chalef's notion of intelligent disobedience, that kids should be taught to assert themselves, should be taught to say, agreeably, I disagree. And we fail them by not teaching them. But I also come to, I, I wrote a, a novel long time ago in the last century called Voodoo Child Slight Return because I decided it was time to bring Jimi Hendrix back to life, you know, because I missed, missed him for a long time. And the focus of that novel was, was there were two ideas. One, we we're always standing at the crossroads. We can always choose another road. And I got into all sorts of mystical literature about that, most of which I invented, but I'm not going to admit that here. So there are little there are little chapter headings in it, and and a friend of mine read these and went, I've, I've got to read these books, and it's like, actually, if you translate the name of the person who said this, you'll find it is John under the oak, which is John Atak. Johannes Untereich said. <laughs> so these books don't in fact exist. I shouldn't have admitted that publicly. I, you know, the seven people who've read the book. But the other part was that I truly and profoundly believe that everybody has their creativity. And I'm happy to call that genius. I'm happy to say that people have the capacity to do something. And that where we favor individuality, we're saying, you are allowed to express yourself and you don't need permission to express yourself. What is it that gives you bliss? You know, the kind of Joseph Campbell, follow your bliss idea. What is it that that makes you feel good? Not how can you make other people feel good? And in the arts, you get this dichotomy where you've got the commercial artist who is going, what do you like? And I'll seek to do that. And they can be very talented and produce amazing work. Then you get somebody like, I don't know, Degas or um, Monet or Kandinsky or whatever, and they are pursuing what they like. They're not looking to please anybody. They're going, this excites me, this interests me. And it's finding that passion in life, which again is something that's generally killed by involvement in an authoritarian group because you're not meant to be an individual. You're not meant to think for yourself and you're not meant to be creative. And so you'll find groups like the Rudolf Steiner, the anthroposophists, that you can always recognize a painting done 
by somebody who's been to the Dubai School of Art because it'll have the Goethe color system and these curves and all of this stuff. And you go, they all look the same. You know, it's like 2,000 years of Egyptian art that looks as if it was all done by the same people, you know, which is a bit of a scary thought, rather than things developing and becoming individual. Yeah, you know, I've worked with a number of people who uh, went to Waldorf schools. Very popular in Silicon Valley, I'm told. We don't give them computers. We don't want them getting into that. Send them to the Waldorf school. You know, no, no. <laughs> Please don't. Yeah, uh, kids, well, now young adults who said that they were only allowed to draw with using yellow for the entire year. They couldn't make uh, points or right angles, nothing with sharp edges, because that was uh, that was like a knife or a weapon, and they had to curve their lines so that it would be softer, so they weren't violent. And there's just a lot to it that it doesn't make the least bit of sense. Until you study the life of Rudolf Steiner Until, and realize right. he was a nutcase. <laughs> Uh -huh. And his whole belief in Araman, the evil spirit that comes through, yes, yeah, the whole thing. Anyway, no, people have no idea. And you've what... got to stir your compost with a sheep's skull at midnight, and, and your water must always go through a figure eight, and oh, you mustn't wear plastics. Okay. Oh, oh my God. Okay. Because I lived in East Grinstead for oh, more than a dozen years, the headquarters for the Anthropops is five miles down the road. And they were generally such nice but rather submissive people. Awful to, as you say, you used the word corralled, and I think it's a very, very good word for, for what happens, where you create a society where people are meant to conform and they're meant to believe these silly ideas. I had a PR who told me that I shouldn't use the color red on a book cover. And I said, why is that? And she said, it's because it's aggressive. I said, and, and what's your research for this? You know, do you think fire engines are aggressive? Do you run away when you see one? In this country, phone boxes used to be red. And it's just this, actually, it's the color in our primate relatives that indicates sexual readiness, which is quite the opposite from aggression. We won't, we won't get into that here. But, um, <laughs> we like to keep it PG. But yeah, I mean, I think we're thinking of a bed of roses, you know, it can't be, can't be aggressive. Thorns, maybe, but not the roses themselves. I wonder also, you know, I think about this where when someone is raised with or like raised in a cult or got involved in a cultic system and they have become uh, really programmed to believe that certain things are bad, certain people are bad. And then I, I'll sometimes then have them make a list of the people who they were told uh, were bad for them or most demonized, the qualities also, behaviors that were most demonized. And then we look at the list uh, to see what this is about. And typically, if it's things like conformity, it, it's because these are the things that threaten the leader the most and threaten the group the most, which means they have power to them which means that the the leadership knows how powerful, let's say, your connection to your parents is or the love is, doesn't mean that they're bad for you. I mean, yes, it can happen that some people leave their homes because, the, yes, the parents were not healthy people and the relationships were not healthy. But typically, you know, cult leaders will know how that connection is so strong and that it threatens them. So they need for you to look at it in this horrible way, like the they're the threat 
for you being able to something, realize something and become something. But even just the idea of having any kind of independent thought or critical thinking, I mean, I think the more something is demonized, the more I guess I want people to have the message that it is really a superpower. It's really something that you want to be able to hold on to or reclaim um, and to understand why it was taken away. It wasn't that it was bad in and of itself or that relationship was bad. I mean, that's when you sort of, it's like you're in the Mad Hatter's tea party, right? Everything is up, that is down and down that's up. It's very hard to make sense of all that. And I'm wondering for you, I know this is a big question, but what helped you make sense of that? I mean, because here you were taught things that were, I'm sure, quite the opposite of how they really were or how other people think about them. And so what helped you make sense of things again once you left? Along the way, while I was trying to find a publisher, one of the, the titles for my book about Scientology, which is now called Let's Sell These People a Piece of Blue Sky, which is a quote quotation from Elrond Hubbard, um, when he opened the doors to his first foundation, that's what he said to the chap next to him. Uh, but one of the titles, uh, Russell Miller's Barefaced Messiah in the bibliography lists a book called Hubbard Through the Looking Glass. And of course, Hubbard was quite keen on particularly Alice in Wonderland, um, but Scientologists do use Through the Looking Glass. They're not meant to. It's not what it says in the bulletin, but we all did. And I was uh, fascinated by Lewis Carroll's work. As a teenager, I'd in fact reread the two novels just before I got into Scientology. And this, this strange other world where things are the opposite of what they seem. My own path was perhaps a little eccentric. I'd studied what's called the Data Series Evaluators course. Uh, very few Scientologists do it. And I found when I got to the end of it and I needed to intern, I needed to do some evaluations, that the course was stopped that when the Guardian's office, the, which housed the harassment machine, was advised that I needed some of their evaluations, the organization was told that they must stop me doing the course. They really didn't like people doing it. Now, this it, I'd been given this course because I'd brought some people into Scientology and I'd done better than anybody else in that quarter. And so I got a free, I was told you can have a free course. So I just looked down the price list and chose the most expensive course. <laughs> I shouldn't say that, should I really? Um, what, what, what a superficial person John Atak is, you know. Oh, yes. That's what everyone says about you, not they at all. They do. It's terrible. Yes. yes In yes. front of my back. Um, and, and so I, I did this incredible course, which is meant to be the definitive course about logic and how you can um, solve any problem, resolve the problems of any organization by applying this stuff. And when I was leaving, having been groomed in this stuff, I kind of went, oh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take this material, which is, is so it tells you things like, you know, uh, if you should have the time, place, form, and event of everything. It doesn't tell you you need the identities of the people involved, which I think might have been Hubbard being a bit worried about being found out. Truth is the exact time, place, form, and event. Axiom 38, I think it is in Scientology. I'm sure somebody in the comments will tell me I'm wrong. And you're welcome to, frankly. That's, that's good. I like that. Please give me as much cognitive dissonance as you can. It makes me healthier. But so I looked at Scientology and went, well, one of these things is the importance of everything must be stated. And I looked at Scientology and I went, 
what are the important bits? There are hundreds of thousands, possibly millions of words. There are said to be more than 3,000 recorded lectures and all of this verbiage. What are the actually important bits? And that was a turning point for me to realize that you weren't meant to understand. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't like, you know, so in fact, when I wrote Blue Sky, I think it's still the only place where you can read the cosmology of Scientology because it doesn't exist in Scientology itself. So I grabbed pieces from all over the place, some of them quite arcane, you know, things that you wouldn't normally notice. So for example, there's a, a peculiar book called The Creation of Human Ability. And in it, there is this set of procedures that you're meant to go through, which is called Route 2. And the 47th process of Route 2 is separateness. And it's the only place I've seen Hubbard say that he's proved that we are individuals, that there is no great lump. You know, it's not like uh, Paramatman and Jivatman in, in the Hindu cosmology, where the individual soul longs for reunion with the Godhead, which is basis, basic in Christianity as well and in other forms of mysticism. He's saying, no, you are always and forever separate from everyone else. And that's the only place it's said, as far as I can tell. And again, that's quite important. I think that's quite important. So finding that Scientology itself was full of outpoints in Hubbard's terms, it didn't fit together, that led me to a decision. I then looked at the day series itself in its own terms. And I'll just give one example. The 48th policy letter of the data series is called Out of Sequence. And it says, the data series policies must be read in sequence. And I looked at it and went, but you can't know that until you get to number 48. Now, for me, that, that should be the first thing you read, not the 48th thing you read. And it was just because they were numbered as they were written. And it was, ah, nobody's come back and this, this course, which is meant to be the these knees, the, the very cutting edge of logic, nobody's bothered to make it rational, so nobody's made it logical. And that brought me to a decision which was the most important decision, which was I reject everything in Scientology. Rather than trying to assess little bits of it through the way I've been led to think, I reject it all. And I this was in 1984. I will include, I will look at things and see if any of them you know, if they're relevant to me, I'll take them back. And peculiar to say, 40 years later, I haven't taken any of it back. I haven't found anything in Scientology that is not better expressed elsewhere. And in fact, of course, I traced, I wrote a paper called Possible Origins for Dianetics and Scientology, one of my snappier titles, I think. And, yeah, you know, 30 years ago. And in it, I think I traced in all 120 ideas that Hubbard had used, not only traced where they'd been used before him, but showed that he was aware of the source. The source was usually Alistair Crowley, of course. Of course. Right. Um, oh, my goodness. Wow. So, okay, so what is so interesting about this, among other things, is that, you know, for example, when I work with people who have been really, let's say, mistreated by someone and then they decide to leave them, the person who's been manipulating them 
um, and was hoping to get away with it, will say, who have you been talking to? Like somehow they've been influenced by some outside source. But no, they were just observing this person's behavior. They were noticing how they're crumbling under it, how things are not making sense, how they're, you know, become nervous people or they're feeling depressed. And they didn't need to talk to anyone else to influence them. And here, in order for you to reject Scientology, you did it by reading their actual literature. There there wasn't an outside person feeding information in your ear. You just saw from the inside what L. Ron Hubbard had written, and that was enough. That is really fascinating. And I think it it's very, very important that once somebody's left a group, that when they feel safe and comfortable to do it, which may not may take a while, they sit down and look at at least some of the materials of the group and say, do I agree with that? So in Scientology, you've got these these books that are meant to be simple fundamentals of thought and problems of work. Probably best to get the pre-David Miscavige editions of them. He changed them all in 2007. Not majorly, but... So, for example, the book History of Man, which says this is a cold-blooded and factual account of your last 60 trillion years, later on says 73 trillion years, later on says 76 trillion years. I mean, it was written over a two-week period, so his memory wasn't that brilliant. Miscavige has corrected it, so it says 76 trillion throughout. But if you get hold of really just about any Scientology book uh, or Dianetics, the mental science of modern health, and have a look at it, what will tend to happen is you'll go, I don't know what he means by that. That will happen frequently. I don't really understand that. That doesn't make sense. Or that's nonsense. You know, if you increase communication, you always increase affinity. But yelling at somebody or shooting them, Hubbard in fact says bullets too are a form of communication, that doesn't actually generally raise their affinity. So this cornerstone principle of Scientology, affinity, reality, communication, equal understanding, is abject nonsense. And by doing that, you can keep challenging. I I remember I talked with Cyril Vosper, who wrote a wonderful book called The Mindbenders in 1968. He'd been in Scientology for 14 years. He'd been out of it when I met him for 14 years. And he said to me, you know, I still find myself crossing the street and going, I wonder if I committed an overt and I'm really glad that he told me that because it made me a little more wary about you know, my own thinking and the extent to which you can't just replace the language and keep hold of the concepts. You know, so I don't talk about the overt motivator sequence anymore. I talk about karma vipaka, you know, which sounds a lot better. It's like, well, have you studied the Hindu and Buddhist texts on karma vipaka? And most of them say, what do you mean vipaka? Because <laughs> that's usually they're talking about the reaction, not the action. Or they still accept reincarnation, past lives, which is Alistair Crowley's phrase, by the way. But they've never thought about the way the Buddhists and Hindus regard reincarnation as a terrible thing, the fear of the eternal return. They're kind of, oh, I'll have my next lifetime and I'll be able to do something. And the whole slant of Buddhism particularly is to come off the wheel of suffering and stop being reincarnated. So... They've still accepted the ideas in the kind of superficial and fluffy way that they were presented by Ron Hubbard. But, you know, they haven't got into the depth of it. And coming, coming to be in charge of your own beliefs, you know, 
deciding what you believe and why, which for me is, as you know, I, I am such a happy person compared to who, who I was through the rest of my life. The last few years of my life have been great. I am a very content person. Who knows, this may be the last, last time. <laughs> and what I've come to, you know, having actually been a Buddhist before Scientology, during Scientology and after Scientology, having been a, a great fan of Lao Tzu and Chang Tzu, I've even translated Lao Tzu's Tao Te Ching, that about 15 years ago, so in my early 50s, I started to go, I don't really care about this stuff. I, I don't, you know, Chung Su says, I don't know where I was before I was born. I don't know where I'll be after I die. And I'm sort of, yeah, that, that's about where I am, really. Um, and to be an agnostic, to be, some, you know, as opposed to having to bash people over the head about God existing or not existing, it's sort of, it's such a comfortable place. And to come to a view of humanity that, you know, I, I'm one of the few people I know who actually believes that we have all the tools in the toolkit to resolve the problems we have. But we have to deal with certain aspects, which, which I wrote about in, in my book, Opening Our Minds. Particularly, we have to recognize human predators, whatever we call them, malignant narcissists, psychopaths, sociopaths, antisocial personalities. I don't care about that. What I care about is, are they predatory? Are they feeding upon us? Are we prey to, to these people? And why do we make them our leaders? Why do we vote for these self-involved, greedy people? You know, And how do you cure that condition in humanity? How do you get people? And that's by getting people to go, I mean, dig my heels in and make my own decisions so that the probably 60% of people who, who don't feel able to do that, we could just slip that over the mark so that 51% of people could make their decisions. We might have some kind of viable democracy, you never know. But it, it, it's happened a little bit in some places. I'm not tremendously happy at the system we've arrived at. As, you know, as Churchill said, it's a terrible system, but it's better than the others. But I think it could be improved upon significantly if people were intelligently disobedient. If, as Ira Taylor has also said, if they were courageous followers, if they were willing to challenge the decisions of their leaders rather than falling into groupthink and veneration of the leader, this strange idea that our leaders somehow represent God on earth and we ought to do as we're told by them, you know. Oh my goodness. So if there were a way to have people see Mm, certain personalities in a different way, not necessarily look look up to them, not feel that they're in good hands if they're being led by them. I think about the people who remember certain teachers very fondly, the teachers who are more strict, who may have given them a hard time, uh, and the parents also, who sometimes were more strict, not necessarily cruel, but strict and that somehow that showed that they um cared about their role and they cared about you and i think we translate certain things as being caring as showing love as showing leadership you know i i have of course an issue with a lot of the political decisions that are made in the united states and who gets elected but there's been an interesting thing you know whether you are a fan of Trump or not, there are a lot of people when they were polled, they were who were Trump supporters who said they felt 
that they were in good hands, that he was strong, that he was fearless, and that he was going to fight the fight, and that somehow then they could coast because they knew someone was in charge. And so I think that, you know, that also is something that's very appealing for people that they can just sort of like climb in the car, put on their seatbelt and go for a ride. Someone else is driving. Um, and then they don't have to think all that much or feel or worry and, you know, feels more relieving that way. And and then there are a lot of things that are not questioned that need to be questioned, like, where is this person taking you? Right. And if they really are a good driver or not, just because they're in the driver's seat doesn't mean they're a good driver. Uh, doesn't mean you're safe, um, which is something that a lot of people just don't necessarily think about because they feel cared for. Yeah. There's an excellent book uh, called Strongman by uh, Ruth Ben-Giat. And I had the, the privilege of being on a town hall with her and Bandy Lee, two remarkable women. And there, I was so shocked by this book. It's very rare that I have to put a book down because I can't take what's being said. But finding out how Mussolini or Gaddafi behaved in real life, you know, that Mussolini would sexually assault three women a day that Gaddafi actually had a dungeon where he kept some women for years. And when you start finding out how these people who give the illusion of strength, how devastated their own internal life is, I, I think Eric, what Eric Fromm said, and we, we have the concept of the malignant narcissist from him, when he said, you know, Freud was wrong when he said that a narcissist is a person who only loves himself. A narcissist is a person who doesn't love they don't experience love, and they replace it with the adulation of others. I think we can go a bit further. I really don't like the word narcissist because I don't think it's accurate. It's not somebody who's self-obsessed. It's not somebody, Havelock Ellis, the first psychologist to use the word before Freud, said it's somebody who doesn't want to have sex with anybody but themselves. And I think that would probably be more accurate. But we've got the word. We're stuck with it now. And I think it's important to say Yes, there are malignant narcissists, but there are also benign narcissists who do no harm, but they're selfish, and benevolent narcissists who, because of the absence of love in their lives, actually do give something to humanity. David Bowie, Elton John, Taylor Swift in this generation are all people who quite evidently want other people to love them. And that of itself is not negative, but you kind of hope that they'll get to the point, which I think David Bowie and Elton John got to. I think, I hope Taylor Swift does get to it. I'm not, you know, she's not somebody that I listen to, so I don't really know what she's doing. But I think with Elton John and with David Bowie, that they did, they grew up, they became adult, and they didn't need the adulation anymore. And they became very positive people who did good in the world. And for my money with David Bowie, created great art. I mean, not a huge Elton John fan, but it's very well-made music. But I think David Bowie was a real breakthrough artist later on in life, not for Ziggy and all of that stuff, which is interesting. But for the, you know, the further he went on, the more he explored and found something else and, and gave something. So I don't, I think it's being immature. It's not being grown up. And the same is true for malignant narcissists. And the problem is their certainty that, yeah, I know where we're going. I know how to get us there. We believe it. And we have to realize that the metaphor of the car, which is an excellent metaphor, 
isn't the metaphor we should be using. We are all in the driving seat. We are all deciding where the planet is going to go. And a lot of my optimism is from the newer view of evolution that's come about since the 1990s, where we had this awful selfish gene idea that, that Dawkins was putting forward, that somehow these little micro units were deciding they were selfish, you know, even though they couldn't see, they were looking out for themselves. It's very odd. But since then, we've added there's natural selection, there's sexual selection, the choice of partners through attractiveness that will determine how big a peacock's tail is and this kind of thing. But we've also got epigenetics that, that we can change our DNA and do change our DNA, whether we want to or not, in every generation. Then we have the fourth dimension of evolution, which is cultural transmission, things like language, things like libraries, that, that we have the capacity to add to our store of knowledge. And the old 90s metaphor, which is you're either a chimp or a bonobo, it's like it's irrelevant what our archaeological past is and what our relationships are because we have the power to change our minds. And so enabling people to have that power, which is you know, not taught in school, which is certainly stripped away in groups, I think could lead to a, a fairly good solution for humanity. Whether we're quick enough to do it, it's another matter. But Right. Oh, that's very true. I think there is, uh, there's a quote I'm remembering when you were talking about everyone being in the driver's seat, and then I know we need to say goodbye but hopefully it won't be uh, another year before we speak again it will be uh there was a quote by um hillel rabbi hillel rabbi hillel about ethics if i am not for myself who will be for me you know if not now when it, you know and basically also if not you then me i'm going to i'm going to try to take care of things i'm going to try to step up and you know, I'm not going to wait for someone else to to jump in and and I need to do it now. I think that there is something that, uh, the, well, the, the world, I think, in terms of the things that are affecting us globally can be helped by people coming into that sense of power. But there are so many people who feel that things are beyond their control. But, you know, if everyone thinks that and no one does anything, then it will be, right? So I think it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy based on people sort of having given up before they began. Yes, I, I think that's absolutely right. And understanding that everyone is important and what everyone does, what everyone says, and what everyone thinks is in fact important. And we we take that away from people. We take agency and authority away from people. But the reality is because we are part of a kind of ever-changing genetic tapestry, I, I have no concern about whether I, I have a self or an ego or a, a default mode setting, which is the current brain science expression, great good fun, or a spirit or a soul or any of that stuff. I don't know how all any of that stuff works. It's way too complicated. But I do understand that anyone at any time can be that butterfly whose wing changes the direction of a hurricane. And that is dependent, I think, on us being pro-social, caring about other people, not sacrificing ourselves. I mean, one of the great things about Judaism and, and an idea that's, that's not talked about enough is this idea of contributing something to humanity. It's fundamental to Judaism. You should be doing something good. You should be contributing to the world. 
it's meant to be fundamental to Christianity and to Islam as well. And and it, it's where we are. And it gives life meaning. We invest meaning into our lives by caring, by seeking to look after our environment, by seeking to look after other people, and by not bullying people. That's definitely one of the things that I don't like in the world. You know? No, so much bullying. It's reminding me of something a, a, a rabbi friend of mine said. He always thought it was interesting that in the show Fiddler on the Roof, in the song, If I if I Were a Rich Man, I mean, here are all these very poor people living in very poor condition. But that the, one of the lines is, I wouldn't have to work hard. He didn't say I wouldn't have to work. And that was very interesting. Like, that would have been unheard of, right? I just don't have to work as hard, but I'm still working. Okay, so it was so nice and educational, insightful, fun to talk to you as always. Let's do it again soon. Yeah, let's do it again. Wonderful talking with you. Thank you so much to John. It is so good to speak with him. And I love also how many books he has read. I mean, yes, how many books he's written, but also how many books he's read. It's very important, actually, when you have come out of a cultic group to be accessing information from many different sources. That's actually kept from you when you're involved in a cultic group. You have one source of information, typically. And if it's more than one source, it is someone else or other people who are also affiliated with that group. So you don't get to learn from other teachers, other sources of wisdom. You don't get to see also by learning from other people whether what you're learning in the cult is verifiable or if it's at all true. There was a time that I went to go check out a class run by a cultic group that bases its teachings in mysticism, in Kabbalah, which has been around for centuries and centuries, where there have been Kabbalistic teachers also for centuries. But when you go to a class at this place, they send you through the gift shop first, which of course sets a tone about the fact that this is a business more than anything else. And in the gift shop, of course, I noticed the specially blessed water, which was difficult to see, especially because it's supposedly imbued with special powers and people will bathe in it thinking they'll be cured of things. And all of that is very dangerous to me. 
and completely irresponsible, but the books were all by one person, the person who started this organization. So even though, again, this form of teaching, this belief system has been around for centuries, you wouldn't know that by going there. You would think that it started with this man, actually, who started this organization just within the last century. I can't imagine if I became, let's say, a math teacher and I said, ah, let me tell you about this thing I just invented. It's called algebra. Mm, Yeah, no, no, that was me. That was me. I started that. And there's no way to learn from people who came before me because I need for you to believe that I am your best and only source of information and I invented everything. So there's so much hubris in that, so much ego in that. And again, that should never be tied in with these spiritual places, but it often is when it is a fraudulent spiritual place. But what I think is important too is that you want to be able to sharpen your mind when you're leaving. You want to understand what happened to you. You want to read books about mind control. You want to read books about influence, about coercion, about that particular group. You want to be able to access information online when in the song that you got to hear just little snippets of by Alan Schlafer, he talks about being torn in a million pieces. That is often how people feel. They feel so fragmented when they have been through the ringer in this way. And they need to hold themselves together or bring themselves back into a cohesive place. And you do that by getting support, but you do that by learning also. I get to find out what happened to me and how this happened. And maybe there isn't something wrong with me that I was vulnerable to this. Maybe this is something that all of our brains have the capacity to be vulnerable to. Let me find that out. That information in and of itself is going to help you build confidence. So you won't feel shame about your experience. You won't feel like you still need to be fragmented because you're splitting off the parts of you that feel shame about your experience. You didn't do this to yourself. I often say that it should be the cult leader who's walking around feeling shame, but they usually, by virtue of their personalities or personality disorder, are not capable of it and not interested in it. And so it's left to the people leaving to feel that way, unfortunately. But when you also have this idea of information, you get to see what information that makes sense looks like and what it sounds like and how different it is from some of the cult teachings that you got. I care about people's time being wasted. I care about the fact that instead of when someone is in their formative years, let's say, instead of being able to learn from the wisdom of our sages, of our teachers, of the people around us, you're learning from this cult leader who may or may not have anything important to say, and a lot of it doesn't make sense. And you're going to spend many days, many weeks, months, sometimes years, memorizing that, and it's going to get you nowhere. And I care about people taking advantage of other people and having their lives be stalled because of this person who just needs for you to think that they are the most wise of anyone you could ever come across and that their words are going to be more important again than anyone else's. And sometimes when people are involved in cultic groups, they don't necessarily believe you that what they're learning potentially doesn't make sense. But I'll sometimes encourage people, if they're wanting me to feel like, no, 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 they are getting something from being there, and I am willing to be open to that, 
I'll ask them to put something they're learning into their own words to see if they've integrated it, to see if it makes sense, to see if it's translatable. And a lot of the times it's not, which means that it doesn't necessarily make sense. It only makes sense there in that group. So you can't use it outside of the group. So how is it going to help you to be involved in this group? What's also true is a lot of people can be swept up in the drama of the delivery of information. And so there are times, too, that I will ask if I can read a passage or quote the leader, but I'll say it in a very plain way. So it's just the words. And then sometimes the magic is lost because really it doesn't mean all that much or it doesn't really make sense. And what you're missing then is the person standing on the top of the stage with his arms or her arms outstretched to heaven or that they're saying that they are channeling some spirit and it's coming from an outside source and through them and to you. So it has this sort of very lofty spiritual power to it. Or it's coming with music behind it. Uh, and the person who is speaking it is wearing some sort of outfit that seems very spiritual. Or they're in your face and pointing at you and seeming like they really care. And they have to give you this information because it's the most important thing for you. With all of that gone, all of the pomp and circumstance and manipulation, then you want to look and see what you have left. And often what you have left are things that just don't come together. Or they are teachings that are so manipulative just to get you to believe that the leader is, again, more wise than anyone else and more powerful than anyone else. And it's totally feeding the ego of the leader, but really not helping you in the slightest. So be a smart consumer of words, of information. Evaluate if it's helping you. Evaluate if you can apply it in your life. Evaluate if it makes sense. And if it doesn't, doesn't mean there's something wrong with you. And it doesn't mean you have to try harder. It doesn't mean you're not spiritual enough. And it doesn't mean you have to sign up for yet another class to have it make sense. It means that it's probably time for you to think about going to another place where the information is relatable, translatable, and is being offered to you in a respectful manner to teach you to raise your ability, your level of understanding, and to give you tools that offer you actual insight into yourself and actual talents and skills that you can use in the world outside. Thank you to John, and I'll talk to you all next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at Indoctrination Podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore Indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.